You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. You know, this is my first time to preach in California. I've only been in the state one other time, and I didn't preach then, but uh, uh, this is a real blessing. It's been a blessing to be with you. It's been a blessing to be in the services, being a blessing to see these missionaries. Uh, We love missionaries. We love missionaries, special people, and they're people. They're not some kind of weird thing. They're people. Matter of fact, according to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, they're reasonable people. Now, by the way, I am from Michigan. I don't have a Michigan accent, though. The reason for that, when I went to Bible college, it was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and the first place I pastored was a little church called Battle Creek Baptist Church, just between Fiery Gizzard Cove and Sweetens Cove, outside of South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. And the people back in those coves, well, Yankee wasn't one word. It was two, and the first one wasn't a nice one. So, uh, man, you drive down through those coves, there'd be burnout cars, you know, as you drive down through there. And I thought, I'm not talking with my Michigan accent any longer. I want to get out of here alive. But uh, what an experience that was. I praise the Lord for just the privilege of being able to serve the Lord. Isn't God good? All the time, God is good. Praise the Lord. I was thinking, now before I can tell this story, I need to make sure you understand the terms. If you don't understand the terms, it won't help you. Uh, But how many know what a mater is? How many know what a mater is? Not very many of you. See, I told this story up in New York State. When I told it, nobody laughed, nobody got it. A mater is a tomato, all right? How many know what a tater is? Oh, now, you got that one. That's a potato. How many know what a nanner is? Oh, you're, you're doing okay. Uh, a nanner is a banana, all right? Now, when I moved to Alabama, it, it's, a different, it's a different field right there. In Alabama, and I'm, I'm, I've been a football fan, baseball fan all my life, but I have never seen a rivalry like the situation between Alabama and Auburn in football. These people think they invented football. All of them do. And in my church, probably about 40% of our people are Alabama fans, and the other 40% are Auburn fans. You say, preacher, there's 20% left. Yeah, that's the sane ones. We don't care. I mean, we just don't care. But, I mean, they're nuts about their team, and they want the other team to lose every game. That doesn't make a bit of sense to me at all, because if they both won every game, then when they played, it means something. Well, it always means something to them, but they're crazy about it. Well, I heard about an unreal situation where an Alabama graduate and an Auburn graduate, after the graduation and the rivalry and all that, uh, they actually became friends. And one day, they were riding around in the Auburn guy's car, and And the Alabama guy said to him, he said, now listen, before we go to the house, I've got to stop by the grocery store, and I need to get a couple of things. And so the Auburn guy said, all right, and he pulled into the grocery store. The uh, Auburn guy, or the Alabama guy went in, he said, I want a mater and tater and two nanners. And uh, the guy behind the counter said, you're a graduate of Alabama, aren't you? And he said, how did you know that? He said, I can tell by the way you talk. 
He said, really? I want to mater and tater and two nanners, and you knew I was a graduate of Alabama. He said, absolutely, plain as day. Well, the guy got his mater and tater and two nanners, and he went out into the truck, and as the Auburn guy pulled away in his truck, the Alabama guy said to him, he said, you know, I was just in that storm, never had this happen before. I said, I want a mater and tater and two nanners. And he said he knew I was a graduate of Alabama by the way I talked. Do you think everybody can tell that? The Auburn guy said, I don't know. He pulled into a parking lot, went into the store. He said, I want a mater and tater and two nanners. And the guy said, you're a graduate of Auburn, aren't you? He said, how could you tell that by the way I talked? He said, no, this is a hardware store. <laughs> oh, no, this is being live streamed. They've heard this back home. Half the church is going to be upset with me. <laughs> Oh, my. I hesitate on this message tonight because I don't have any message that I preach that hurts me as much as this one, and you'll figure that out as we get into the message. But this is missions conference time, and there is something, a subject that stirs my heart, especially about missions, and it is the subject of hell. Now, let me ask a question. I've, I've asked this in many different states to congregations. How many of you, the main reason that you got saved was that you did not want to go to hell? How many? Raise your hand. How many? Yeah, quite a crowd. Uh, practically every place I go, at least 80% of the congregations, sometimes more. That was the reason I got saved. I'd heard the gospel. And I sure didn't want to die and go to hell, and I saw Christ as my only escape. And that's why I took Jesus Christ as my Savior. Now, it didn't take me long after he saved me to learn to love him. And I thank God for that. And as I understood that he is a holy God, and he went to the cross of Calvary to pay for my sins because he loved me, then I really began to understand how much he loved me when I realized how much of a sinner that I was. So I'd like you to turn tonight to Luke chapter 16. It's a very familiar story, and this is not going to be an exposition of this passage. I'm preaching it, I realize. Maybe everybody in the congregation here tonight is saved. Maybe there's one or two lost people in the congregation, but I am preaching this definitely pointed to save people. We believe what the Bible says about hell but do you ever think about the reality of what we believe is there a real hell well obviously I believe that there is and I believe what God says about it we say we believe the Bible well, is that so then do you believe what it says about hell I read a story about two Christians that were talking at work, and an atheist walked up to him and said, you Christians, you, you don't believe the Bible. Oh, they said, yes, we believe the Bible. He said, no, you, you don't believe the Bible. He says, if you believed everything that the Bible said about hell, then you'd be doing everything that you could to see, get people to see it your way so that they get saved. And the truth is, there are no doubt thousands upon thousands of Christians who would say, yes, I believe in a literal hell. And yet it doesn't move them at all to witness to others. I was brought up in Sturgis, Michigan. In Sturgis, Michigan, 
all the years that I was growing up, we had the Jehovah's Witness come by the, our house. We had the Mormons come by our house. But I do not know at any time of any Christian coming and knocking on the door of our house to tell us about Jesus. My mom and dad, bless their hearts, I mean, they were lost. They didn't know God. They didn't know anything about God. They were drunkards. And there were many times I rode with my dad in the car. This was long before child safety seats and things like that. And we very easily could have been killed in a car wreck. We drove out into the country many times and, uh, to go to the farm where my grandpa lived. And we would have died and went to hell. And I doubt that there would have been a Christian in that whole city that would have shed a tear for us. Because none of them ever cared to come and tell us about Jesus Christ. Now the truth is, I admit it, there are times, there are times I get a little tired about running buses. And having to put up with all those kids, keeping them corralled, man, sometimes that can be a real chore. They get into all kinds of things, and we have some funny stories to tell about them. And we love them, and it costs. Now, thank God, in Alabama, it doesn't cost us $6.29 to run to get a gallon of gas. We can do it for $3.29. And I wouldn't have said that was cheap before, but now I feel blessed that it's only $3.29. You say, well, preacher, why do you run those buses with all the people that it takes to run them and all? I'll tell you, it gets hot in the summertime in Alabama with that Alabama sun beating down on them and the humidity is about 92%. I tell you, it gets hot, it gets muggy, and we don't have air conditioning on those buses. And our people come in, just like your people do, come in late after running the buses. I understand that. And they're tired and they're wore out when it comes church time for Sunday evening. They haven't had an opportunity yet to get a nap. Some of them hadn't had an opportunity to even eat. You say, why do you keep running the buses? I'm going to tell you why. Because we believe there's a hell. We believe that it's real. Our people love giving to missions, and they give to missions a lot of money. As a matter of fact, we have 28 families out of our church that are missionaries serving right now. We've had others that have gone. Some have come home and are pastoring churches in different places. And you know, God always calls your best people. That's who he calls. I mean, I've got some people I'd be glad for him to call. I'll offer them up to him and say, Lord, take this one. <laughs> but he doesn't do that. I mean, we, just to take care of our own missionaries, yet alone all the other missionaries we support from the different mission boards and so on, uh, it does take a lot of money. Well, then, preacher, why do you have so many missionaries? Why do you have missions conferences and all that? Because I believe there's a hell that lost people go to. And once they're there, they're never getting out. But if you thought about the reality of what that means, then who really is going there? Usually when we think of hell, we think of the worst of society that has gone there. But that's not always true. Sometimes to some families, it's the sweetest grandmother that ever lived. It might even be a faithful Sunday school teacher in some church that doesn't preach the gospel. And the Lord knows there's churches all around this country that do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. What about them when they die? And even though they were moral, 
good, clean people, friendly and nice to folks. But if they die without having been born again, they go to an eternal hell. I want us to think about that tonight. I look at the scripture, and of course, Jesus taught a lot about it here in the book of Luke chapter 16. You'll notice beginning in verse 22, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And may I say to you today, one has risen from the dead. And yet still there are people that will not trust him. Just looking at what the Bible says about hell, in this story alone, the Lord Jesus Christ called it a place of torment. Hell is a place where people scream for mercy that'll never come. It is a place of tormenting flame. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 14, 11, the Bible says, in the smoke of their torment ascendeth forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night. Also in verse 24, it's a place where people scream for one drop of water to cool their tongue, a drop that'll never come. In verse 26, it's a place of no escape. It's also a place of no rescue. According to the Lord Jesus here, it's a place where people have no rest. It's a place where people pray, but they do not get their request answered. It's a place where those who are there do not want their loved ones to come. Now, that's all in the story that we read, but that's not all that Jesus had to say about it. In Matthew 13, 42, he called hell a place where people wail. In Matthew 8, 12, it is a place of weeping. In Matthew 13, 41 and 42, hell is a furnace of fire. In Matthew 25, 30, Jesus said it's a place of outer darkness. In Matthew 12, 32, it's a place where they can never repent. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said that hell was a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. In Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 48, it is a place where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Six times in those verses, he calls it hell fire. I remember hearing an interview with a famous evangelist, 
And he was asked the question, do you believe there's real fire in hell? And he said, well, I don't know if there's fire in hell or not. I just know Jesus isn't there, and that would make it an awful place to be. And I screamed at my radio, read your Bible. The Bible says there's hell there, there's fire there. There are other truths in the Bible about hell. Revelation 20 and verse 14, it is a lake of fire. In Revelation 20 and verse 1, hell is a bottomless pit. It is called a horrible tempest in Psalm 11 and verse 6. In Isaiah 33 and verse 14, hell is a devouring fire. Psalm 18 and verse 5, hell is a place of sorrows. In Revelation 22 verses 10 and 11, hell is a place of filthiness. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, it is a place of everlasting destruction. In Jude 13, it's a place of darkness and blackness forever. In Revelation 21.8, it's a place where there are liars and adulterers and whoremongers and murderers and thieves and drunkards. In Revelation 14 and verse 10, hell is a place where they drink the wine of the wrath of God Almighty. Hell, what a terrible place. And it'll burn for eternity. No one gets burned up. People are conscious. Even infidels have confessed it. In reading some of the stories, Sir Francis Newport was the head of the English Infidel Club. And as he lay dying, he said, You need not tell me there is no God, for I know there is one, and I am in his angry presence. You need not tell me there is no hell, for I already feel my soul slipping into its fires. Wretches, cease your idle talk about there being hope for me. I know I am lost forever. What a way to die. Skeptic J.H. Huxley, Huxley, his housekeeper said that as he lay dying, the skeptic suddenly looked up at some sight invisible to mortal eyes, and after staring a while, whispered, so it is true. Too late. The atheist Voltaire said, I am abandoned by God and man. I'll give you half of what I'm worth, doctor, if you'll give me six months to live. The doctor said, you'll not live six weeks. Voltaire said, then I shall go to hell. His agonies were so great that even his atheist friends were afraid to visit him. His nurse said that for all the money in Europe, she would never watch another atheist die. There's an interesting book out there. It's called Testimonies of the Saints, Dying Saints and Sinners. There are a number of stories in that. And of course, that's back before they, you know, drugged up people as they were laying on hospital beds and stuff. And many people had experiences. For the saved, good. For those that were lost, though, not so good. Here was one about a young man in Georgia. He was warned by his parents and others to turn from his wickedness, his gambling, his profanity, and he wouldn't do it. He took seriously ill. And as he lay there dying, he said, oh, drive these devils away from me with their chains. They are dragging my soul down into hell. The devils are dragging me down. And then he cried out mightily, don't come to this hell of woe. This is hell. This is hell. And then he slumped in death. 
hell. A terrible place. And all who go there are those without Christ. Now the truths about hell are clear in the word of God. But not only are those truths clear, but also who's going there. For the Bible says in Revelation 20, 14, and 15, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Jesus said, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Revelation 21, 8, but the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and idolaters and sorcerers and all liars shall have their part which burneth, a uh, lake of fire which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Yes, what a horrible place for all who die without Christ. But it's also true, not only what it says about hell, but about what the only escape is. And the only escape is not to go there. And the only way not to go there is through Jesus Christ. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all. It's Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see, Jesus made it so there is no middle ground at all. It surely can never be. It doesn't matter what you believe. Because that would mean then that Jesus was a liar, and a liar wouldn't be able to save anybody. Some people think he just went out and said things to make people feel good. But I remind you, Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus always preached the truth, and he said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, hallelujah, the truth he gave. If you want to go to heaven when you die, you have to come to Jesus because no man cometh unto the Father but by him. He's it. That's why I went to the cross of Calvary. Revelation, I'm sorry, the book of Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, and yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Over in Acts chapter 17, Paul was preaching on Mars Hill and he declared in the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because God hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained and hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. That man is Jesus Christ. As he preached his crucifixion and his resurrection to people who had never heard, Christ is the only hope. Now having said all that about hell, here's where the rub comes in. We seem to have trouble making application. Because in our mind, we relegate hell to the worst of society. Let me tell you what that means to me. As I told you this morning in my testimony, I was brought up in a home of drinking and cursing. As a matter of fact, as far as I know, when I was 22 years of age, I was the first of the Allison clan to take Jesus Christ as Savior. 
Now, as a little boy, we lived in Sturgis, Michigan. My grandpa farmed about seven miles outside of Sturgis on Baker Street Road. I love my grandpa. Man, I want to tell you, we were close. My grandpa and I, every weekend, my mom and dad would take me out to the farm, and I'd spend it with my grandpa. Now, my grandpa didn't have anything to do with God. They were drinkers, cursers as well. As a matter of fact, I heard later on after I got saved and talked to my dad several times trying to lead my dad to Christ, he told about when he was young, he went to church one Sunday, a little country church that was about a mile or so away from the farm. And when he went home, sitting around the dinner table, by the way, my dad was the 11th of 11 children. He began to talk about what he'd heard in Sunday school, and my grandpa said, we're not going to have any blankety-blank preachers in this house. And he forbid my dad to ever go back. But me and my grandpa, man, were we close. We'd go out and get the cows. My grandpa milked 16 cows. He also farmed several fields, of course, that were out there in the, with the equipment that he had back then. It wasn't these big things like what you see today. But he had 16 cows that he milked, milked them all by hand. Now, the first cow that always came in, he had eight stalls, and they would come in eight at a time, and uh, so just take two runs of them, and that would be it. But the first cow that walked in all the time was black, a black cow. Now, it wasn't a black Angus cow, it was just a black cow. And my grandpa said to me, he said, Mike, that's your cow. And I said, well, that's pretty good. He said, you can name it what you want. And so being the very creative child that I was, I named it Blackie. <laughs> very special. My grandpa, he had these stainless steel buckets that he would fill up, you know, with the milk from the cows. And he would always start out when I was out there. He, he made, bought a little bucket that was stainless steel. And he would fill that up with Blackie's milk. And I would take it up to the house to put it in the, in the strainer. Now, as I walk out the barn... I would go around the little shed there, and I would take that nice, warm bucket of cow's milk, and I'd shoo the fly away. There was always a fly. If you had a bucket of milk, you had a fly in it. I mean, it's just, they didn't drink much, but there was just always one that seemed relegated to be in the, in the milk. And I'd take it, and I'd, I'd surf it up a little bit. Man, that was delicious, that cream. That, you talk about whole milk. That was whole milk. And I didn't die. I did just fine. Now, I didn't realize, though, my grandma was watching from the house where I was taking the milk, but that's beside the point. I'd, I'd take it up there, and of course, when it came time to eat, and I love grandma's cooking, but when it came time to eat, and she'd pour me a nice big glass of milk, I'd always ask, now, is that Blackie's milk? I don't want to drink any of these other cows' milk. I want to drink Blackie's milk. Oh, yeah, that's Blackie's milk. Grandma made butter by hand. Some of you may remember having done that years and years and years ago. But she made it all by hand. She beat it all out and, man, put that big slab of butter there on the plate. And I, before I'd butter my bread, I'd say, is that Blackie's butter? Oh, yeah, Mike, that's Blackie's butter. Now, I've come to realize Grandma and Grandpa maybe were not as honest as I thought they were. <laughs> but I didn't know that then. That wasn't what counted. Now, my grandpa, he had, a, he had an old, a small Ford tractor, and we would go out to the fields. I'd sit on his knee. He'd work the pedals. I'd steer. And he had a horn that went, ooga, ooga. And I, we'd push that, and the cows would pick up their heads, and they'd start coming in, and he'd do all the milking. And every once in a while, he'd have to go over to uh, Burr Oak, Michigan, in his green Chevrolet pickup truck, 
And we'd ride over there. We'd go and get the grain for the cows. And then he always took me to a five-and-dime store. Now, I don't know what that is like today. It'd be like a, a little department store. And whenever we went to that five-and-dime store, he would buy me, first of all, uh, some either plastic army men or cowboys and Indians uh, so that I could play with them out there at the farm. you got to understand, there was no cable back then. There was no Internet back then. There weren't any video games. There was nothing like that. I had little men. I'd get my BB gun and set them up and shoot them, you know, uh, do that kind of thing. And he always bought me, and I hope you're taking notes. If you're not taking notes, you need to get out paper and get this down. He always bought me a pack of Twizzler strawberry red licorice. Now, not just any red licorice would do. It had to be a Twizzler strawberry red licorice. Now, they were much bigger back then than what they are today. By the way, not cherry. Don't give me that nasty stuff. A Twizzler strawberry red licorice. And what you could do with that, you could bite off both ends, stick it in your milk, suck your milk through that. You can't do that with the stuff they do today. And then you eat the straw. Man, it was tremendous. I love that stuff. But my grandpa and I, man, I love my grandpa. I mean, my life really, as a little boy, revolved around my grandpa Allison. My grandpa got sick. It was July of 1959. And of course, smoking all of his life. He was 72 years of age. Uh, smoking all of his life, that had done a lot to his health. He suffered from emphysema and a few other problems. And I remember one afternoon, my dad was out there with my grandpa, and they called for the doc. Back then, the doc made, or not hospital, but house calls. And he drove all the way out in the country to see my grandpa. And he told my dad, he said, now listen, your dad needs to go into the hospital so we can help him out. He's, I, I just don't think he's going to make it. If he doesn't come into the hospital, we can do some things for him. But my grandpa was stubborn. He wouldn't go. And so my dad sent me into the, back into Sturgis with my brother and sister and, uh, and my mom. That night about 2 o'clock, my grandpa started coughing and he couldn't get his breath. And he said to my dad, he said, Dewey, he said, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the hospital now. So my dad went to the phone. Now back then, I mean, this is Andy Griffith time. You pick up the phone and wait for Sarah to come on the line. And it was a party line, so if someone else was talking, you just had to wait. But at 2 o'clock in the morning, nobody else was on it. My dad picked up the phone and waited. He waited for 20 minutes. And by the time she finally came on the line to call the hospital and bring an ambulance out, my grandpa had gone out into eternity. July the 29th, 1959. When they told me the next morning that my grandpa died, I, I didn't know anything about God, didn't know about heaven or hell. When I thought about death, I just thought of blackness and darkness. That's all I thought about. But I tell you, my grandpa was dead. I love my grandpa so much. He's dead. Now listen to me. For the Bible says about hell is true. And it is. That means since July 29th, 1959, every second of every minute of every hour 
of every day, of every month, of every year, of every decade, even right now, as I preach in California, my grandpa Allison is in hell, crying out for one drop of water. And don't you know, if God would let me, if he would just open up hell for a moment and allow me to take one drop of water to cool my grandpa's tongue, I'd do it, but I can't. He's in hell. And that's never going to end. That, friend, is the reality of hell. Why do we go so winning? How are they going to call upon him? How they, they don't believe on him? And how are they going to believe on him if they don't hear? Somebody's got to tell them, and the job is ours. We're their only hope. And they not, may not appreciate it now. They may not like it. But if they come to Christ in heaven, they'll be rejoicing. We had a, a lady in our church when I pastored in Manchester, Tennessee. Her name was Jimmy. Her husband's name was Billy. Jimmy was saved. Her husband was not. She was a sweet gal. She loved the Lord. She had diabetes. And it eventually took her eyesight. Now, she sang in the choir. And at that time, I led the choir of the church as well. And, and so she would come to choir practice, and she'd bring a little tape recorder, and she would tape the practice so that she would know when to come in and not, because she couldn't see me standing there leading the singing. Bless her heart. She used to go soul winning a lot, but unless some other lady would take her, she couldn't go. So what she would do is she would go to her phone and she'd just dial 721, which was the exchange for Manchester at that time. And she would just then dial four more numbers and just talk to whoever came on and tell them about Jesus. Oh, she loved the Lord. What a sweet gal. One night, my wife and I had just gone to bed. Oh, we'd probably been in bed for about 15 or 20 minutes. We weren't asleep yet. And uh, we got a call from her daughter. And she said, listen, my dad, I think he's had a heart attack, and they've taken him to the hospital. Preacher, can you go down to the hospital? I said, yes. Uh, we'll get ready. We'll go right now. So we got dressed, and we got in the car. We headed down to Trinity Hospital there in Manchester, Tennessee. Walked into the emergency room, and Jimmy was seated up against the wall. And I said, Jimmy, it's Pastor and Jan. She said, oh, preacher. Oh, preacher, Billy's in hell. Billy's in hell. Well, what could I say to her? That's right. He died without Jesus. He's in hell. You see, this is real. It's, it's not just something we do to be religious. This is real. These missionaries are going to the field to tell people who've never heard because they don't want them to go to hell. God's laid them on their heart. They're going. Hallelujah, they're going. Our job while we're here, we're the only hope that this world has. We may not change our country. We may not get it back, but that's not the main issue. The main issue, according to Jesus, are those souls going into all the world and preach the gospel Amen. to every creature. 
You know, since hell is real, we need to start living like it's real. I mean, are you really a good Christian to give little to missions while billions are dying without ever having heard? Are you really a good Christian to allow your neighbors to stay lost without doing anything to tell them about Jesus or getting, getting them under the sound of the preaching of the gospel? Why do I want people faithful to the choir? I want them faithful so that in case anybody turns in or, uh, or turns in on our internet site or if they come by to visit, I want them to see that, hey, our people want to be in the house of God. They're excited about it. Man, my soul's been lifted up with the singing I've heard today. Hallelujah. I guarantee you lost people coming say, hey, there must be something important to this. But I get bothered when choir members have trouble making it even three out of four Sundays to choir practice. They care so little about how they sound. What on earth is wrong with that? I'll tell you what, if my water heater only worked three times out of four, I'd be getting me a new one. <laughs> Faithful means all the time. Faithful means you can be counted on. Do we emphasize faithfulness to the service? Yes, we do. And why do we do that? Man, when people come, they need to see everybody there. And by the way, it does everybody else good to see you there. I mean, that stirs up the fires. I preach in an awful lot of places, normally east of the Mississippi, only a few times west of the Mississippi. But east of the Mississippi, I preach a lot. And when a lot of these folks that stay home, they don't even realize the impact that their absence has on the other people that have come to the church. Just being there makes all the difference in the world. Reality is, because hell is real, I don't have time for the complainers and the gossipers and the book face crowd. I'm sorry, Facebook crowd. You know that crowd on their nice little web blog or maybe even their podcast, they spend all their time running down churches that are trying to do something to save people out of hell. They've got nothing important going on in their life but running down others who are trying to do something for God. And they'll answer to God for everything they put on their sites. We're not playing. Hell's real. Now, I know there are some people who say, come on, preacher, it's not that important. Well, tell that to Jesus. It's why he died on the cross. Paul said this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Hallelujah, he did. Tell it to my grandpa. Tell it to Billy. Yes, hell's real. And I don't have any doubt that as I preach tonight, there are probably some here tonight that as I preach, the vision of a loved one, a relative, a neighbor, maybe a grandpa, maybe a grandmother, because it doesn't make any difference who they are, maybe a son or maybe a daughter. If they die without Jesus, I don't care how moral they are, how nice they are, how wonderful they are to you. If they die without Jesus, it's hell for eternity. That's the reality of hell. 
Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.